Well, the story of Jonah is not quite like uh, the story that you saw, but kind of. It is the story uh, that is one of the more memorable in the Old Testament, maybe the entire Bible. It really, when you think of it, is about the death and the resurrection of an Old Testament prophet about 700, 800 years before Jesus would reenact that scene. And so it has given scholars a lot of fits. There are men and women with good minds and good hearts on both sides of the aisle. Some are believing that the story is myth, that it was concocted in order to make a point. Others believe that the story is historical fact, and they will argue that point until somewhere in the argument, the point itself is lost. So what I want to do is to just talk to you about the point. The story of Jonah is not a story about a fish. It's a story about a deep-seated prejudice that a man of God has. That's the backstory. When I was a kid, I was maybe five years old. I'd just given my heart to Jesus at the side of my bed. Wanted all my friends to do the same. And my closest friend at that point was named Dean Hall, lived down the road from me on Lynn Street. He was in the same grade. That was kindergarten. After a long time, I finally convinced Dean that he should live the Christian life, that is the good life, that is the moral life. But being from a completely irreligious background, he had no idea what that meant. Finally, I talked him into at least living like he was a Christian. I'll never forget the first time I heard Dean Hall pray. We were coming across the parking lot at the Lynn Street School. We had both just gotten beat on a game of King of the Hill because the other side cheated. <laughs> and halfway across the parking lot, I heard Dean say, we should pray. And he stopped right there and he just said, God, they cheated. Give them sin. Give them hell. All right, let's go. And I was stuck. I said, wait, you can't, <laughs> you can't pray that God would give them sin if he cheated. He has it. He said, fine, then God give them hell. Let's go. I said, no, you can't. I don't think we can do this. We can't pray that God will give somebody hell. We have to pray that God will save them from hell. And he said, but he cheated. Do you want God to send him to heaven? <laughs> well, not really. Because he cheated. He said, well, then give him hell. Let's go. He put his finger on a raw nerve that Christians have. When the Lord passed in front of Moses, he said, the Lord, the Lord, 
He is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. When the Israelites rebelled in the desert, Moses said, the Lord, the Lord, he is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. When Nehemiah rebuilt the wall, he stood at the gate, told all the Jews, the Lord, the Lord, he is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. Four times in their book of songs, the Psalms, the psalmist said, the Lord, the Lord, he is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. When Joel stood up and preached to his generation, he said, rend your hearts, not your garments, and turn from your ways. For the Lord, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. It's what every Jew had learned to rely on. No matter how far you wander from God, he is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. But then people cheat. And what do you want then? You want God to just, what? Take them to heaven? There are the enemies, your rivals, your competitors, the arrogant, the rich, the condescending, the better than thou. They cheat, never get caught. In other words, patriot fans. <laughs> what do you want God to do? Just send them to heaven? This is Marion. We have heroin dealers, pimps, hookers, militant member of LGBTQ. We have racists. We have counter racists, pedophiles. What do you want God to do? Just send them to heaven? The kids who broke into your house, the woman that seduced your husband, the man who ran off with your wife, the father who abused your mother, the uncle who molested you, the businessman who preys on the poor, the rich, who take advantage of the poor or the poor who sue for nothing. Does it seem fair to you that they should at the end of it just be able to repent and walk on into heaven? I mean, can somebody really give somebody 70 or 80 years of hell on earth and then just walk into heaven? Let's put it on a broader scale. We have people who terrorize other nations. We have armies who call for violence. 
people who burned down cities and supremacists who run their cars into them. We have Islamic radical who cut the heads off of 20 Coptic Christians. But you just want them to go to heaven? (laughs) You see it? Are you starting to feel the tension in the book of Jonah? Are you? It's about a One of the problems with following God for a long time is the longer you follow him, the further into him you get. And the further into him you get, the harder it is to connect, see, or even care about people that are on the margins. Man, they are so far from where you are right now. The Gaithers used to sing, the longer I serve him, the sweeter he grows. It's true, but there's a corollary that says the longer I serve him, the more bitter I get. I mean, it means I see the difference between the life I had and the life I got until pretty soon I just fall out of touch with. And I wonder if this is not really the deepest form of prejudice in not in our country, but in our world. I wonder if the deepest form of prejudice is is not white over black or Jew over Gentile, male over female. I wonder if the deepest prejudice is judgment over mercy. When I do something wrong, I want mercy. And when they do something wrong, I want judgment. It all depends on who's doing it wrong because See, when I do it wrong, it's a consequence of my passion, my focus, my zeal. But when they do it wrong, it's another. It's just another story. You can get so drawn into your faith and your religion, whatever religion, that it can make you hard and cynical, um, proud, couple background stories, and then we'll just tell the story in fast motion. One, Jonah is a prophet in the early 8th century. He is probably already a prophet before this book is told. He's prophesied in the days of Jeroboam II, so there's times when he's sort of taken on the king. It's like people today who say things about the president and other people, yeah. That was sort of Jonah uh, in his prime. He would speak out against injustice whenever he would see it, even if it came from his own president. And the one in the White House in his day was clearly flawed. And Nineveh was known as the capital of Assyria, and Assyria was the capital of terrorism. We have in our historical records these logs and journals from Assyrian kings who talked about torturing people 
who they opposed. A few years ago when I toured the British Museum, they have a gate there hanging in the British Museum they believe was hanging over the gate, it's a bronze plate over the gate of Nineveh about the time that Jonah would have been alive. And it shows a monarch holding a person by the arm like this. His other arm has been cut off. Both legs have been cut off and he is laying down begging for his life and the monarch's holding a dagger Somewhere in the writings of Ashurnasipal II, an Assyrian king, he brags about flaying alive enemies and draping their skins over their corpses. We hear stories about terrorists today who cut off heads and and, uh, burn people alive and put them in steel cages and drown them. And our, our stomach turns and our blood boils. But this was common in Assyria. It's how they dealt with their enemies. It's the last place you want to go, especially if you're a prophet. You just call for judgment over mercy. And then go preach to the choir, same as you've been doing. So one day the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And he said, I want you to go preach against the city of Nineveh. And Jonah went down to a port and he found a ship headed for Tarshish. The video got this right. Nineveh was one direction on the map, and Tarshish, wherever it was, there's three or four possibilities, but all of them were in the opposite direction. I want you to go down to Nineveh. I want you to go west, and he went east. We are told this three times. He went east when he was supposed to go west, He saw a ship headed for Tarshish. Tarshish was known in its day, if it's the one we think of, as a pretty opulent city. They traded with the Israelites in tin and lead and and metals. And so it's everywhere you wanted to be. Nineveh was this violent, terrorist-filled city. And Jonah saw the ship paid the fare, got on board the ship, went promptly below and fell asleep. No sooner did he fall asleep and the ship was out to sea when the Lord sent a storm that started to tear the ship apart. And the sailors were all screaming for their lives. They all started to pray. This is worth mentioning. The sailors are not pagans. They're devoutly religious people. They all have their own God, but the gods that they serve don't control everything. So they're all crying out to their God, hoping that the God they cry out to would match the one who controlled the seas. And it's not working. So the captain goes below the ship and he finds Jonah sound asleep and he shakes him. 
And he says in the King James Version, what meanest thou? Who says that? <laughs> Literally what he said is, what are you thinking? Get up and call on your God. Perhaps he will save us. Jonah doesn't even pray. He's the only dude. He's the religious guy. He's the only one not praying. He says, this is my fault. Captain says, who are you? Where are you from? What did you do? Jonah said, I'm a Hebrew. I serve the God who made the land and the sea. And he told me to go one way and I'm going the other. <laughs> now, the sailors are dumbfounded. They're thinking, you serve a God who made the sea. So you run from him by going on the sea. <laughs> Boy, you're dumber than you look. But if he made the sea and the land, where are you going to go? What do we need to do? Jonah says, you need to take me and throw me over. We won't stop here, but it's worth noting this is assisted suicide. Jonah's not killing himself, but he's offering himself to be killed by the sailors. Take me and throw me over. <laughs> I read that, I thought of Caiaphas, who said, um, don't you know that it's better for one person to die than for the whole nation to perish? It's better for one person to die than for the whole ship to get torn apart. So the sailors refused to do it. They go back to the oars. They sit in two columns, about 20 rowers, and they row like mad to get to shore, and they still can't do it. Finally, when they're out of options, the sailors get around Jonah, and they start to pray. And this time, they pray to Yahweh. And they say, please don't hold against us what we're about to do to this guy. But we think he's right, and they throw him over. And immediately, the sea becomes calm. And when it becomes calm, these sailors, who a moment ago were all crying out to their own individual gods, start to call out to Yahweh. They make sacrifices to Yahweh. And they make vows to Yahweh. These are the sailors. These are the pagans. And Jonah sinks to the bottom of the sea. He'll say in chapter 2, I went to the base of the mountains and the seaweed wrapped around my head. Time out. May I point something out? If God is slow to anger and abounding in love, then it's possible someday he might call you to do something you don't want to do. Let me say that in slow motion because so much talk today is about people finding their passions, presuming that when they have found their passion, they always find what God wants them to do. See, <clears throat> 
Religious people are always doing that. They are famous for coming up with an idea themselves and then foisting it onto God as if God didn't have a mind of his own, as if God's plan for my life was always just like mine. Gosh, I hate when religious people do this. There are some, it's not the experience of many, I admit this, but it is the experience of some that God may come to you and say, you're not good at this, you don't like that place, and you don't like those people. This is not your passion, but that's where I want you to go. And when he does it, you better go. That's worth saying. I came out of school, 22 years old, IWU, um, with not a lot of options. And I remember filling all these pulpits in the middle of a summer. Every Sunday but two, I was in somebody else's pulpit for four months while I couldn't find a church. Nobody wanted to take a chance. I don't blame them. And uh, one time I preached at this small church in Romulus and when it was over, uh, it was just filling the pulpit. They said, we want you to come and be our pastor. I said, let me think about that. So I went home and I got on the living room floor uh, with my parents and my girlfriend named Lori and, and we started to pray. And by the time the prayer meeting was over, we were all sobbing. I have found out later my dad, most of all, he had just been in this church and there had been a dispute. The church had split. They'd had to bring police officers in to hold people's side. And he was praying silently that day, dear God, anywhere but there. And I remember praying, Lord, I need to know your will for my life. But, but, but as Romulus was calling and nobody else was, it seemed like the will of God was pretty clear. It's funny how you never know the will of God when you don't like it. You know, what exactly do you want me to do? Mark Twain said, ain't the parts I don't understand. It's the parts I do understand about the word of God that gives me the hardest time. And so finally, I relented that night that if no one else called and I would wait, I would go. Someday God may do this to you. And when he does, you will discover as I did, that the call of God is sometimes like an arranged marriage. You couldn't fathom yourself loving that person or that calling until you do it. And then somehow when you move into it, you start to bond with people in places you once hated. And you discover that sometimes passion follows obedience it doesn't precede it. 
There may come a time when God says to you, these are the people and that is the place that you don't like and that's what I want you to do. You're not even good at it and you don't even wanna go, but that's where I want you to go. And when he says it, you ought to go. Time to go, "Uh uh-huh, not or something, that's right. Last scene. At the bottom of the sea, Jonah is thrown at the bottom of the sea, and a giant fish comes and swallows Jonah. And inside of the fish in chapter two, he starts to pray. And how he prays is fascinating, isn't it? You would expect a person now in the belly of the whale to start praying a prayer of penitence. He does not. We still hear this prayer of kind of religious rites. What he says in chapter two is, oh Lord, I called out to you and you listened. I went to the bottom of the sea and you lifted me up. He even says in chapter two, verse eight, he said, pagans who worship their idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I will call out to you and I will fulfill my vows. Is this making you sick? Pagans? I mean, are you talking about the sailors? The ones who were praying when you were not? You mean those pagans? The pagans who felt bad about throwing you overboard? Those pagans? You mean the ones that you never cared about when you jeopardized their lives by your disobedience, those pagans. You mean the ones who were talking to your God while you had seaweed wrapped around your head? Them. Do you start to feel why Jonah is such a hard book? Because the wrong people are on the inside and the right people are on the outside. Right in the middle of his vigil, the Lord causes the fish to throw Jonah up out of the Conrad's pool. I mean the sea. And while he's there, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time. And he says, now I want you to go west, go into Nineveh. And this time he's ready to listen. So he goes into Nineveh and he preaches one sentence. In 40 days, the Lord is going to overturn this city. Translated He's going to burn it to the ground. Give them hell. And they repented. The Ninevites, the terrorists, they repented. They started putting on sackcloth. They sat in ashes Pretty soon the king heard about it. And when the king heard about it, he declared a national day of mourning. This is what he said. Let not neither man nor beast eat or drink in the city, but let everyone call on Yahweh. Now wait for the next line. Who knows? 
maybe he will hear us and he will relent. God hears this prayer and he saves the city. Meanwhile, Jonah is out sitting under a tree. And there's an interesting phrase in chapter four. It says, but Jonah sat under the tree and waited to see what would happen to the city. 40 days, he's going to burn this place to the ground. Give him hell. And he went outside and he waited for God to give him hell. And he didn't do it. And that's when Jonah said to the Lord, chapter 4, verse 2. See, this is why I didn't want to go. Right here. Because I knew that you were slow in anger and abounding in love. There you go again. And right here, I think we have the core of Jonah's story. Sometimes those people that you don't like are not as irreligious as you think they are. Sometimes God has been in a place long before you ever showed up. Sometimes the difference between you and them is mostly in your head. Sometimes they are not angry at God. They're angry at religious people who are sleeping in the boat while the ship is being torn apart. All they want it's not a theologian. They want somebody to grab the oars. Somebody get hold of the ropes. And what makes them angry is that we have answers. They want help. They're not shallow. In fact, they're tired of shallow. They oppose shallow. They want someone to speak to their depths. So when God calls you to go to a place you don't want to go, you should go. And when you get there, let mercy triumph over judgment. more religious you are, the more you have come to love judgment. It's fair, clean, logical, decisive. Judgment knows what to do and it just doesn't. Mercy's messy, indecisive, vulnerable, weak, sensitive, self-aware.
when God calls you to places, wait. I bet he has, some of you. I bet he has. I bet there's people here this morning who um, had a call some time ago and you ran. How'd that go for you? You ready for the next one? Maybe you're hearing God this morning say, all right, let's do this again. Go to the place I told you to go and I'll meet you there. I don't like it. I'm not good at that. Go to the place I told you to go. And maybe there's people in our room this morning who have just been hurt or violated by some of the people that I mentioned at the beginning of the message. And it works so nicely for us to be able to put them into another category. We can't say give them hell, but we sure don't want them to go to heaven. And maybe what you hear the Lord say to you today is the difference between you is not what you thought. One day when Jesus was talking to the Pharisees, they were mad at him again. And they said, how is it that you always eat with sinners and tax collectors? You know what Jesus said? He said, let me tell you a story. There was a man had two sons. One day the young son said, I'm going to go live my life. And he ran off and he partied all night. And he slept around and he got himself drunk. And then he came to his senses. And he said, you know, <laughs> all my father's servants back on the ranch, they've all got things pretty good. And here I am feeding the pigs. I'm going to get up and run back. And I'm going to say to my father, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your slaves. So he got up and he went running back to the house and his father noticed him while he was still on the path and the father ran out on the path and he threw his arms around him and he said my son my son he was lost but now he's come home and he created a huge feast and a party and everybody was there but the elder brother so he went out into the fields and saw the elder brother working in the fields and he said what you doing out here asleep in the fields do you know that your brother's just come home? He was dead and he's alive. And the elder brother said, I have served you my entire life and you've never done for me what you've done for him. Here the word of the Lord says, Jesus, when one is religious and all of us are, one should be careful that they are not so insulated inside of their religion that they find themselves standing out in the field, unable to celebrate a revival in Nineveh or the return of a prodigal. Because that is another kind of prodigal. And from that field, there is almost no return. Every Jew that heard him that day would have remembered Nineveh. Nineveh is the prodigal. And Jesus said, the religious and the irreligious are just as far from the heart of the Father sometimes, only they don't know it.
Would you bow your heads? I have two questions for you. First, who are the people or where are the places where you least want to be? Take a moment and name them. Give them a name. Who are the people or where are the places you least want to be? Question two, what does mercy over judgment do there? Who are the people, where are the places you least want to be, and what does mercy over judgment do in those places? What does it call for? Father, in our lives there are flaws sins distances between us some of us have been Christian too long and we can no longer see the grace that we require this morning Lord look at our sins. We confess them right now. Under your breath, we confess them right now. These are not flaws, not idiosyncrasies. They're not excesses. They're not just consequences of my passion or my genius. No, no. In these ways, we are not like you. We are sorry. Change our heart, not theirs, ours. This is our time. Now, God, in my mind, I call forward those people and those places I do not want to be. And I call myself to loyalty to Jesus in those places. If you're calling us, we go not to be successful, simply to be loyal, to wear the name in those places. We've heard your voice. Now we go. In Jesus' name.